I would like my career to be one where that was remembered by, hey, lots of people, hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of people, one million millionaires if we can achieve that goal, became financially independent in part because of wisdom that they picked up or tips and tricks that they picked up from bigger pockets. Welcome to the Youth America's Future. I'm your host, Jesse Levitan. And in this episode of the podcast, I sit down with Scott Trench, the CEO of Bigger Pockets, an online platform teaching people about personal finances and real estate investing. In addition, he's the author of Set for Life, teaching people how to create financial independence for the long run. As always, make sure to click that subscribe button and leave a five-star review if your platform allows for it. Truly helps me out. Truly will help you out by getting more prominent guests to the show and getting this content to more and more people. And now, without further ado, here's that conversation with Scott Trench. Mr. Scott Trench, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Before we get into personal finances and real estate investing, I first want to talk about the business side of things with Bigger Pockets. Now, let's go back to 2014. At this, by this time, you graduated from Vanderbilt University with a degree in economics. Uh, you were working a corporate job at a Fortune 500 company in the finance division. So what made you leave the corporate world and join this relatively small startup in bigger pockets? Yeah, sure. I became obsessed with this concept called financial independence, which I'm hoping we're going to get into uh, here today. I, I became, you know, financial independence is the idea of having enough passive income such that you don't rely on wage income. Um, I was, I had, you know, I, I felt that there was more to life than going up the corporate career ladder, for example. And I wanted to have, and I'm fiercely independent individual. So I wanted to make sure I had that control and power over my life and destiny with that. And so to achieve financial independence, one needs to accumulate somewhere in the ballpark of several hundred thousand to several million dollars. And you do it very rapidly. And so then it becomes a, a video game or a game about how can I best optimize for that approach. There are four ways you can handle your money to move toward financial freedom. And those are you spend less, earn more, invest your assets, or create assets. At the time, um, when I was working at the Fortune 500 company, I felt that I didn't really have a lot of leverage over my income. So I couldn't earn more. I could Uber on the nights and weekends and that kind of stuff. But that was a, I could only increase my income by maybe 10% with minimum wage work. So it was a very inefficient path to accumulating hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. Um, I could spend less, which is one that was a huge, huge lever for me because I was able to get my spending down to about half of my $50,000 per year income. And that enables me to save $25,000 a year. It would be very, very difficult for me to earn an additional $25,000 a year driving for Uber after work, for example. So that was a bigger lever for me. So I became uh, very obsessed or very focused on a blog called Mr. Money Mustache, which taught people how to live very frugally. And I adopted many of those practices and cut my spending dramatically. The other part of the other two things that I mentioned are the ability to invest or to create assets. And I felt that I was not in position to create assets. While I was trying with small business ideas, I tried selling winter gloves for driving. I tried selling funny t-shirts. I, I tried a couple of different side ventures. Um, I felt that you know, if, to, to compete with an entrepreneur who's doing it full-time day in and day out to grow their business, that's a tall order with that, right? 
Um, and so I, I, w- I didn't think that was a good option for me. So instead, I, I also thought I could invest. And that's where real estate came in. So I believe that by spending very little and saving most of my income, I could invest in real estate on a repeated basis and move towards financial independence over a period of years. So I became obsessed with this site called biggerpockets.com. And I eventually joined Bigger Pockets as the third employee in pursuit of, while simultaneously closing on my first duplex investment. So after one year out of college, I was able to save $25,000 on my $50,000 per year income, purchased a duplex, and joined a small startup. Long answer to your question, but hopefully that's, uh, <laughs> hopefully that answers it. Yeah, absolutely. That was great. Um, so I've been following Bigger Pockets. As you were saying, I'm also a big fan of Bigger Pockets. I mean, now you work there. Now you're the CEO of Bigger Pockets. But uh, I've been following them for quite some time. Ever since I got into the real estate world, right? Obviously, I'm not investing. I'm a senior in high school. But just understanding the game of real estate back in 2018 is when I really familiarized myself with the game. Uh, that I actually came across Grant Cardone, which I'm sure you're who you're familiar with, um, to get that exposure to real estate investing. I'm curious to hear, now that you're the CEO and you weren't the CEO at the time, I believe you were the VP, how do you plan on expanding the platform and what future plans do you have for Bigger Pockets? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so Bigger Pockets, I would, I, I would articulate it as a digital ecosystem for learning about real estate investing, connecting with peers, mentors, and professionals in real estate investing, and finding and using tools to buy and manage, you know, buy properties and manage your portfolio. So we're a digital ecosystem. And across that ecosystem, we have a podcast, we've got a a Facebook group, we've got a website, we've got a YouTube channel, we've got uh, an Instagram feed, an an email newsletter, a subscription product, a marketplace of professionals. The goal right now is various parts of that ecosystem are awesome and various parts of this ecosystem, that ecosystem are still growing or still being developed. And so at a simplest level, we want to build a one-stop digital ecosystem for everything you need for real estate investing. That means you can find, we're with you in in your car if you want to learn about real estate while you're driving. We're with you if you want to watch us on YouTube while well, you should be, you know, paying attention in class or at work, we're, we're, we're there on your Instagram feed. So you're not seeing, you know, what that, uh, uh, you know, you guys are still in high school, but what that kid from high school is doing nowadays, you're seeing stuff that is actually going to advance your, your real estate career. We're with you on your bookshelf. You can meet people locally at our physical meetups that we have all over the country um, with those types of things. And, and so it's really just placing infrastructure to sustain the outputs of those parts of the business and then make sure that they cash flow, right? Um, you know, every part of the business has to make a profit or at least has to have a, a potential to make a profit in the future for us to justify investing in it. Um, so I, I, how's that? I'll stop there. Is that, does that explain the kind of vision for the, 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 the business operations, I guess? I can get into the mission and vision if that would be more helpful as well. Yeah, I want you to get into that actually. Yeah. So the point of the business is to enable people to become financially free. When you enable people, when people become financially free in their 20s or their 30s or 40s, these are folks that I believe are going to have a high potential to impact society in some creative and awesome way. They're no longer dependent on some boss or some job to sustain their lifestyle. They have a business or passive income that freeze their potential up. These are people who are going to start businesses, become politicians, invent something, give back to society, or become involved in the community, 
or just go drink a bunch of margaritas on the beach um, for for a good number of years. Happier, healthier, more productive, and I believe overwhelmingly disproportionately positive contributors to society. So the idea is to facilitate that as, as large a scale as you possibly can. And one really way, great way to do that is through real estate investing. So our platform's goal is to do exactly what I just said with that infrastructure, be this digital experience with real estate that gives you perspective from every different possible angle about every different possible strategy um, with that and to enable this for as many human people, human beings as possible. So we have a target of 1 million millionaires that bigger pockets will create. So now that you mentioned real estate and kind of that's so key to your mission, right? I actually want to jump into real estate investing right now. There are a bunch of different strategies I mentioned earlier, how I know someone that's in wholesaling. So what strategy do you invest in? Is that how you started? And would you say there's one particular strategy that trumps others? Well, I, I think that the strategies are just going to have different risk, reward, and velocity profiles, right? So I, I would classify some real estate, quote unquote, investing strategies as more of real estate entrepreneurship. So for example, if you're going to do a burr strategy or buy, rehab, rent, how, how familiar is everyone going to be with the jargon I'm about to lay down on real estate investing? Should I explain the basics? Yeah, you should. Yeah, probably a little okay. bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when, when, you, when, when one purchases a property, a rental property, right, one makes money in four ways. First, the property will go up in value. We call this appreciation. You know, over time, inflation usually increases the value of property three, four percent per year. This year, inflation is much higher than that, or appreciation at least is much higher than that in real estate. Um, so that's wealth builder one is appreciation. The second one is cash flow. You know, the tenant will pay rents. Let's call it two thousand dollars. And if my mortgage is one thousand dollars, I might have some other expenses outside that mortgage, like. I have to repair the property from time to time. I'll have tenants who are moving in and out. And so they'll be vacant and not paying rent for a period of time. And let's call those 500 bucks. So if I have 2,000 in rent and 1,500 in expenses, I'll get 500 a month in cash flow in that instance. Third, I have a mortgage. Um, and every month, um, that, that $1,000 component of the cash flow I mentioned for the financing charge, I'm paying down the mortgage by two, 300 bucks a month. And that accelerates over time through a complicated process called loan amortization. Loan amortization, And then fourth, real estate uh, income is tax advantaged. I can offset that income with certain um, tax loopholes like depreciation and those types of things. So it's a very tax advantaged way to build wealth. So I get appreciation, cash flow, loan amortization, and tax benefits as a real estate investor. And those, those are the ways I build wealth. And the whole reason you invest in real estate is because you think you're going to make more money doing that than you would in the stock market or an alternative asset class. Um, lots of people will debate whether that's true or not um, and whether it's worthwhile. I obviously believe that it is uh, coming from bigger pockets and doing that myself. I personally employ a very simple approach to real estate investing. I, I do what's called buy and hold investing. So this is probably what most people imagine. I buy single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, and quadplexes. I save up. I put down payment down. I get a mortgage. I put a tenant in place, and then I rent it out. I make a little bit of money on cash flow. I pay down the mortgage, and the property goes up in value over time. And I buy one property every couple of years. To get started in this process, I put down $12,000, which was one half of one year's savings for me, if you remember from earlier in the journey. And I put that down as a 5% down payment on a duplex here in Denver, fixed up a bunch of the stuff in my nights and weekends, 
and placed some tenants in there. And those tenants in the other side of the duplex were able to pay my mortgage for me, which is a way to live effectively rent-free. So that's how I got started in that. It's very difficult for many people to imagine putting $60,000 down, for example, on a $240,000 duplex. Much more manageable to put down $12,000. We have a lot of other strategies, but that would it be helpful to cover more of them or was that, was that helpful for, for now? Yeah, we'll, we'll go uh, back to that. We'll loop back to that. But I actually want to mention something. So as I've been running numbers on hypothetical deals, right? I can't invest now. But I've been seeing this debate over whether to put down 20% uh, as a down payment, or let's say I think the minimum is 3.5%. Uh, I, I, I follow Ryan Pineda. You might know who he is. Uh, he's really into house flipping, but he was talking about how his first deal was 3.5% down. When talking about how the mortgage eats into the, your monthly cash flow, does putting down, let's say, does putting down 3.5% or 5% give you really any cash flow per month? And if so, or if not, rather, where is, what is the point in which you start actually getting a drip from that household? Well, let me, let me, reframe, let me reframe your question with extreme examples to illustrate okay. this. So suppose I have $100,000 and I want to buy a rental property. And I go, I'm somewhere in the Midwest. You probably can't fathom this in Long Island. But um, in the Midwest, you can buy property in some cases for $100,000, right? Let's call it a million, all right? I can buy one house for a million dollars in Long Island, or I can buy four houses, each with $250,000 down in Long Island, which is better, Right. Well, probably, probably the the four houses. Yeah, and well, well why do you? Well, yeah, the, the why that is is because now I'm I'm getting I'm I'm able to use leverage, and so let's say that that next year inflation is ten percent, property values rise ten percent. If I have one one hundred thousand dollar what one one million dollar house because we're in Long Island, I keep forgetting um, that property is going to go up from one to one point one. The four houses are going to go from four to four point four. So I invested one million. I made four hundred thousand appreciation in the latter example, and one hundred thousand in the former example. Now leverage can cut both ways, but long term we tend to see three four percent appreciation in these properties, and that compounds in your favor in the leverage sense. The same thing is happening on the rents side of things. So if you can imagine, my mortgage payment is typically fixed. Right, so I have a I have a, 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 a four thousand a month payment on my million dollar property, right? And I have four four thousand dollar a month payments on the four properties, right? But if my rents are, you know, let's call it ten thousand. This is not true, but let's say it's ten thousand per property. In case one, it goes up from ten thousand. You know, let's say rents also increase ten percent. In that case, it'll go from ten thousand to eleven thousand. But the other case, I'm going from forty thousand to forty four thousand. My mortgage payments stay the same. And my rents increase. So my, my spread increases over time. And that is what I like about using leverage. Now, this can cut both ways. You have to have a strong cash position and those types of things. But in general, on average, if you can sustain it without going bankrupt, you go to bankrupt, your whole portfolio goes to zero, right? Um, and it ruins the whole game. Um, but if you can sustain leverage over a prolonged period of time, it can compound your returns to that extra level. So I don't like to use that much leverage. Uh, I, I probably am levered around 50%, 50 to 60% debt to equity. And so they call it to half my portfolio. If my portfolio is a million dollars, I have $500,000 in debt um, on the portfolio. Um, 
in the house hacking example, we are putting down because you're a home, a, 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 an owner occupant, you can put down much less than 25%. You could put down 5% or three and a half percent. And so now let's say, let's, 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 same thing. Let's pretend we're putting down a million dollars like we were in the first example. You know, that's actually, now you're buying a 23 and a half million dollar property <laughs> um, mm-hmm. if you're able to use that kind of leverage in that case. What most people are doing when they're buying when they're buying a house hack is they're putting down okay I'm putting down three and a half percent let's that's three thousand five hundred dollars on a hundred thousand dollar home, and let's say that home appreciates just three and a half percent. Now I've made a hundred percent ROI on my down payment in that instance. So that's where you really get some crazy numbers is when you can put down three and a half five percent on these things as an owner occupant. That's only available in most cases if you actually move into and live in the property. Um, and so is that risky? I don't know if you're going to pay, like what I, for when I, my first investment, I put down 5%. I put down $12,000 in a $240,000 duplex. Previously I was paying, I was splitting a, a apartment with a roommate paying 600 bucks each $1,200 total. And then I went from that to having 1550 in rent and I'm sorry, 1700 a month in rent, 1150 from the other side and 550 from a roommate and a 1550 mortgage. So I'm clearing 150 bucks. Am I at risk? I have a lot of leverage, but now I'm living for free and benefiting from that 100%, that crazy ROI. Plus I'm paying down the mortgage. Plus I'm not paying rent. So that there, you know, that, that's where I, I like the lower down payments in terms of an ROI perspective. And then let's also not forget that for most people, this is a practical consideration. They, I just didn't have $60,000 to put down on my property. So if you ask me what's better, $60,000 or, or, or uh, putting down 20, 25% or 5%, it's a moot point. I don't have, I'm not going to wait three, four more years to save up month by month to buy my first property. I'm going to put down right. and, and act with what I have. Got it. So let's go back to what we were talking about earlier about the different strategies. You said you were focusing on single family homes or one to four units. So I want to juxtapose that with Grant Cardone's philosophy. He's big into multifamily with his uh, private equity fund. And he says pretty much 16, 32 units minimum. What would be your counter to that? Or do you think, like, what, how would you compare? I guess, a single family home or a duplex to what he's talking about in those multifamily, really apartment complexes. Yeah, well, well, I think I probably have just a little bit different goals than Grant Cardone. Grant Cardone, I love Grant Cardone. I've listened to uh, many of his books and read a couple of them. He's been on the Bigger Pockets podcast. Um, so he, he's an amazing guy. I'm, I'm just not necessarily about 10Xing my portfolio in my personal life. You know, I, I, I have... I, I told you need several hundred thousand to a few million dollars to become financially free, in my opinion, and live like I can live a, a middle upper middle class lifestyle right now without ever having to work again. Mm-hmm. I've won with that component. I, I do this job at Bigger Pockets because I love it, and I'm trying to 10x Bigger Pockets in Grant Cardone style, perhaps. <laughs> but my personal portfolio that's just not my goal with that. I, I want to buy a property every year to cash flow it and, and, and allow appreciation and buy the buy and hold approach to work its power. So I'll buy a property every, every year. And I find that it's just simpler and easier. I get better financing terms on those properties. If I were to try to buy a large apartment complex, I'd have to use a lot of leverage. I'd have to find a way to raise the capital from something like a, a 32 million, a 32 unit apartment complex. Let's say it costs $8 million. 
I've either got to come up with two to three million and then get a private loan from a, a local bank, or you know, or I've got to raise that money from private capital, like other friends and family. And now I'm managing their money for them. And so you can get rich a lot faster doing that because you can leverage other people's money um, to begin doing that. But for me, it's just not my goal. So I, I think that the buy and hold approach one by one with duplexes, triplexes, quadplexes over a five, 10 year period can make you several million dollars and several hundred thousand a year in cash flow. And I don't need a lot more than that for my rental property portfolio. And I'm not willing to commit enough time to making that happen. Got it. So let's talk about what you're currently doing. I know you have a private fund with a business partner out in Denver. I believe on BiggerPockets' website in your bio, it mm -hmm. says $1.5 million fund. So I want to ask you, what are your long-term goals, not only for your real estate portfolio, you kind of hinted at this last part, but the lifestyle aspect that that portfolio provides? Perfect. Great question. So yes, I, I invest with a partner. Um, we do exactly what I just described. We buy a property every year. So uh, to usually two to four units, you know, boring in a good location. That's going to have boring, high quality tenants. And, we're, and then you sit. It's You don't wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate and then you wait. And so the idea is just to sustain that basically in perpetuity. Buy another property this year. We're actively looking for deals right now. Um, and are probably going to make an offer actually later tonight on a certain property. You know, you make 20 offers, you get one um, in this market. But yeah, so that, that's the goal is to buy these properties, operate them um, well-class, make sure that they are up to date. They're, there's no deferred maintenance where the units are rehabbed. Whenever tenants move out, we bring the, the units up to market rent um, and kind of just do that boring buy and hold approach consistently, but not aggressively here in Denver. And over a 10, 15 year period, um, we've accumulated, I think it's now at like closer to one seven five two million um, portfolio. And I think we'll, we'll crack the 10 million number um, within the next five to seven years here, just by carrying out this stupidly simple approach is my belief. And do you use other people's money to leverage that? I do not. I use a conventional 30 year mortgage uh, got, that I get from a conventional lender. So when it comes to your properties, do you, uh, I guess, buy it as an LLC or as an individual? Uh, as an individual. Okay. And is there any particular reason why you don't have an LLC? Because I, I, I'll i give you some context to why I'm asking this. Uh, I always see like on TikTok, YouTube, the benefits of having an LLC. You can write everything off. You don't have to pay taxes. Uncle Sam will be begging you and you don't have to give. So why did you choose to invest as an individual and not through uh, entity? Well, I'm not aware of, um, in my case, there being a lot of big tax advantages for the LLC. Uh, as a sole proprietor, or I guess a partnership, um, the the net income from the, the, the properties passes through to my personal tax return as it would in an LLC. Um, so, so there's no advantage necessarily with that. There are a couple, I think the nuance for the LLC debate is really interesting where let, let, let's start with where I started from. When I bought my first property, I had no money. So I had no assets. The point of an LLC, or one of the biggest points, is not really the tax advantages, but the liability protection. Now, remember, I'm buying a house hack. I'm going to live in one of the units and rent out the other one. The protections of an LLC 
rely upon you having a separation between personal and business. So in order, if someone were to sue you, my belief in my situation was that because I was living in the property, that they would be able to pierce the corporate veil is what it's called and go after my personal assets anyways. Mm. The second thing is, so, so one, I didn't think I was going to benefit from the protections of the LLC in the first place. Second, um, you can't get conventional 30-year fixed rate mortgages inside of an LLC. So I can't get a mortgage as Scott's LLC. I can only get a mortgage as Scott. So in order to put the, the mortgage, in, the property into the LLC, you have to buy it in your personal name and then quick claim the property into the LLC. And at that point, that risks that the lender can, the lender can say, your prop, the, the rest of your mortgage, so I buy a $400,000 property, I get a $300,000 mortgage. If I move it into an LLC, the lender has the right, they don't, have, they don't have to do this and they rarely do, but the lender can say, you just sold the property. You sold it from Scott to Scott's LLC and your mortgage is due on sale. It's called the due on sale clause. And therefore you owe me the $300,000 back, Mr. Trench. And I didn't like that. That's that, that, that seemed like a bigger problem than potentially getting sued. Third, uh, for, so third, I have, I had insurance on the property. So the, the, that I believe was an adequate protection in many regards in the event that I had a, a tenant issue or, or whatever from that. Um, and fourth, there was, there was, um, it's just a little bit more complex and difficult mm. to manage and set that up. Nowadays, I'm seriously thinking about getting an LLC. The reason for that is my net worth has significantly increased. I now have that. Oh, the fourth, uh, fifth reason is I had no assets to protect. So in the unlikely event yeah. that I did get sued, that they pierced the corporate veil, that my insurance didn't cover it, they would get their, they would get my ten grand. Congratulations, you <laughs> lawsuit, right? So, so there's nothing to protect, right, with that because I'm just starting out. Nowadays, I've got some stuff to protect. The, the stakes have kind of have kind of changed, and there's there's more benefits to using the LLC structure. So I may actually switch into an LLC later this year. Um, with some of these properties, but that's how's that for a detailed overview of the LLC or not? Question. Yeah, it's great. We'll just get no, started. it definitely it definitely clarifies things for me. I want to actually go into this hypothetical individual, this model person of someone that's just starting out, like you, has zero assets, maybe has zero cash to begin with. I know, I believe you guys have a book on it too, and there have been many YouTube videos about this. How does one get into real estate? with no money or limited money because i think one of the biggest turnoffs with the real estate as a, you know compared to the stock market let's say is if i have $1000 i can put that into a low cost index fund right now or an etf or just buy a stock but real estate i can't really buy a property for $1000 so what is your advice to do this a college student or someone that's just starting out in their career that hasn't built up the necessary savings yet to buy a property and invest in real estate. Do you suggest they save up and buy and hold using that strategy? Is there another strategy in which they can use limited money or no money down? Or would you say go the stock market route and invest, I guess, more conservatively with the amount you have? So my, my belief, and this is the great thing about Bigger Pockets, is Bigger Pockets is a community and platform with hundreds or thousands, you know, millions of people, you know, hundreds and thousands of people who are thought leaders in various niches in this. My personal opinion is not reflective of the crowd opinion in this. But my personal opinion is that you should 
save up the money for a down payment and develop the income sources and the credit and buy a property if you're going to get into real estate. I, I like house hacking style. That that's my favorite flavor of this because of the the obvious advantages. If you you know if you're if you're thinking about doing this over the next couple of years, I believe that a disciplined high school or college student can save up ten fifteen thousand dollars a year in cash, perhaps more. And so there's no reason why entering your junior if you're in high school right now, entering your junior or senior year of high school, you won't have plenty of money for a down payment on that property, and. Now we talk about the income and the credit aspect of that. That's where, hey, if, if I'm looking to get in real estate, what I would have tried to do, I think, going back in high school is I would have considered um, saving up money during freshman, junior, sophomore year or whatever, and junior or senior year, buying a property near campus, renting out the other rooms to some friends and that kind of stuff and getting started in real estate with that way. Maybe working with my parents if they would have been gracious I'm sure they, they might they, they, they might have. They, they're wonderful and paid for my college. Um, but maybe they would have helped, gone in with me on the property and guaranteed the loan or something like that if I were to use my own money and be accountable for the, the, the proceeds of that, make sure that they never miss the payments. So that would be one way. If that's not an option, then you graduate. And then after a year of working or six months of working with your job, that's when you can go and put yourself into rapid position to qualify for a house hack again. And I really like the house hacking approach. Um, uh, for for folks getting started because you can put down that le- that lower amount of money and and get um, into the business a little sooner. So I like save up, build your credit, get some income, and invest in real estate from a position of financial strength, not try to find a creative high risk way to leverage your first deal. Got it. And I think this might honestly relate to what you mentioned earlier, and I want to jump into that. You said something that was very interesting. You said the other strategies are more like real estate entrepreneurship. So can you expand upon that? And do you think that those strategies or those avenues are valid avenues that can create wealth for the long term? Yeah, well, well, yes. First, the answer to the second part of the question is yes. We, you know, you wouldn't believe it. And I'm a highly skeptical person for a lot of these things. And I'm like, can you really make money doing that? Is that, but then you hear people that are actually doing it and making money doing that crazy approach over there. And that one over there, there are people making money in real estate in every conceivable area. There are people making money flipping houses. There are people making money flipping larger apartment complexes. There are people making money buying dilapidated shacks in the middle of a cornfield. And there are people (laughs) making money buying mansions on Long Island. Right, and so all of these strategies work. It's about knowing your market and what's what goes what works for you there, and what ma- leverages your skill sets. So, a couple of the highest level strategies I would say are going to be uh, things like wholesaling real estate, flipping houses, burr, which I'll get into in a second, and buy and hold, which is what I'm doing. There are many other strategies, but those are four ones to get you noodling on. There's tons of der- derivations of this. Short term rentals, I'll add as a fifth one. I think that's going to be a big opportunity. So what is wholesaling? Wholesaling is I'm going to find somebody who needs to sell their property, but for whatever reason is not going to list that publicly so that everyone can bid on it. And then I'm going to match that property to buyers. I'm going to find what are called off-market deals. And so let's say I find a property that's worth $120,000. I'm finding a seller willing to part with it for $100,000 if they can do it really quickly and off-market and then I pocket some of that spread. So I say, I'll buy the property for 100,000 and resell it for 120,000 to the next investor, or I will just match the two and take the 20,000 or a piece of that $20,000 spread for myself as a percentage of the profit. 
that strategy is in some cases very highly controversial on bigger pockets. Um, but there are lots of people who are being very successful with it, right? In some cases, it's not in some states, ver- versions of that are legal, and in some states, versions of that are illegal. So really know your market and understand that. That's a lot of work. You have to do what's called marketing. You have to send these people postcards or call them or knock on their doors to see if they're willing to sell. And then you have to find investors like myself who would be willing and able to purchase those properties and match them together on a very tight timetable in order to make that work. Lots of good content out there, lots of strategies. That's wholesaling. I talked about buy and hold already. Flipping. Um, Probably most people are familiar with this concept, but I'm going to buy a property. I'm going to usually do more than a cosmetic upgrade. You can do, you can just paint the walls and call it a flip. But I think that many of the professionals that are really doing this on a sustained basis to make a good living are typically doing much more than that. When you flip a house, when you buy a house, when I buy a property, I get a 30-year mortgage for like 3 4% interest rate. A flipper will, will often use what's called hard money financing. And so, you know, these, I'll buy a property. If I'm a flipper, maybe I'm buying a $500,000 home that's in really terrible shape. I don't know. I'm making this up in Long Island, right? But let's say like the really bad house that is all boarded up or whatever is five, dollars $600,000 for the flipper to purchase. They might demolish the house or really kind of do a major, major gut rehab that requires them to take out all the appliances, everything. And that property is not habitable either when they buy it or during the construction process. And so the bank won't give them a 30-year fixed rate fund mortgage like what I have. Instead, they'll pay 10%, 12% interest rate in a hard money loan. So the goal of the flipping project is to complete it as fast as you possibly can because that whole time you're accruing this crazy interest rate, almost like a credit card while you're completing the project. So to be a good flipper, you have to have really good, you have to be able to find good properties. You have to be able to buy them low and manage the the rehab process at a low cost and quickly because you're losing money in a literal sense, the interest rate on your loan, and then either sell the property or refinance the property. So a flipper would just buy it, fix it up, sell it. And to be good at it, the faster you can do that timeline and the more cost effectively um, you can complete the flip, the the better off you're going to be. The bigger the spread between the after repair value and the purchase price, the better off you're going to be. A variant on that is what we call burr. So that's the same thing. Let's let's re- go back to that flip. I just flipped the property. I, t- I bought it for $500,000. I put $700,000 into it. It took me six months. So I had to pay a lot of money in interest. But, my, but, I, uh, but now the property is worth a million. I can either sell it for two hundred grand or profit. If you're following that math, that's probably not working out perfectly. But um, I can either sell it for 200 grand or I can refinance it and I can pull out $800,000 in a cash out refinance. So now I've bought that property and now I hold a rental and I have no money into it. This is called burr. And a lot of our investors really like it because you put down, you do one property, you finish it, and then you get all your money back out with which to do the next property. And you can repeat that over and over and over again at a high velocity of money. And that's a very popular strategy these days on bigger pockets. Um, did I miss any? of the four, four or five strategies I outlined or? Nope, you got it all. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to follow up actually with the burst strategy. I was thinking about this as I was finding this strategy and going into it myself. Is it possible that you run the risk of over leveraging when you continuously just refinance, take the extra money you get from your, you know, from the refinancing with the new appraised value, 
putting that into your new deal and everything is just based on leverage and you don't have real equity in the subsequent properties? No, a great, great question. So, and these, this is like, these are great debates that are happening all over on bigger pockets with this, right? Lots of people are making money on Burr. And if the market declines at some future state, you imagine maybe a lot of people will lose a lot of money or go bankrupt in some cases from the Burr strategy um, applied incorrectly. Here's, here's a fundamental problem that's been happening over the last two or three years. If you are a terrible flipper, it's going to take you a very long time to complete your flip project, right? And in a market where it's going up 20% year over year, your interest rate is like 10% on this flip. But because the market's going up by 20% and you're lousy at your job, you're making more money um, by being a bad flipper or a bad burr <laughs> investor right now, right? So that to me, that clearly is not sustainable with that. So look, I, I think you got to be really cautious if, if you feel like you're not operating your business very intelligently. You don't have a clear, repeatable process that works in an average market conditions or below average market conditions. But let's say that I'm, let's forget the Burr strategy. Let's go back to buy and hold because after I've completed my Burr, that's where I'm at a, a buy and hold investment, right? I've now take my money out. I don't believe it's risky or I don't believe it's unduly risky to put down 25% on a rental property, take a mortgage out for the rest and buy and hold for a very long period of time. I maintain a strong conservative financial position. I make good money from my job. I make much more in rent from my properties than the mortgage costs. I have a big spread for there between that. I have a buffer for vacancy, repairs, capital expenditures, big repa- capital expenditures are big repairs in a property, um, property management. And I still maintain a very good cash flow after all of those things. I have a substantial cash reserve of at least six months, closer to 12 months, in cash of my mortgage payments for my rental property. And I have another reserve after that for my personal life. And so if you're appropriately and conservatively capitalized, I think you can use leverage in real estate responsibly. If you're just going to play an infinite game where you're constantly re-leveraging your position outside of what is sustainable relative to the entire context of your financial and investing position, I think that's where you can get in trouble. In practice, most people can't do 50 burrs. They can only do one burr at a time because it takes six to 12 months to complete the process and cash out refi. So it's only slightly faster in terms of acquiring more properties than other things. But yes, I think you can get in danger with it. But I think the key to that is making sure your rents, your property cash flows, your rents are significantly in excess of your financing costs um, and other, other maintenance expenses, and that you have a good, strong business and personal financial position going into real estate. I want to talk now about a book that I recently came across. I actually didn't read it yet, but I know the general principle. It's called Die With Zero. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. But essentially, the idea is, it's kind of, and this is the opinion of the author, it's stupid to die with such a high amount of wealth when you could have used that wealth to live a fulfilling life, have those experiences you want to go on those vacations you wanted to, spend quality time with your family members and friends and take them out on trips and all these different experiences that you could have had if you just used that wealth. So when we're talking about your long-term goals, this is you, Scott, would you say that your goal is more oriented towards net worth or cash flow for the long-term? Because at the end of the day, you know, if your focus is net worth, then it's just a number and you're not really focused on using it. But if it's cash flow, 
maybe you're more inclined to use that income, that drip from these properties. And let's just say they're more passive streams of income. So is your goal more focused on and for the lifestyle you want to have, right? You're the financial uh, freedom, the the runaway, the, the runway rather that you want to build. Is it cash flow or is it net worth? When you, when you, uh, I promise this will make sense in about five, four minutes. <laughs> when you turn on the faucet to brush your teeth in the morning, how, how do you think about the water that is coming out of that faucet? I think it's running. I think it's a constant stream and it's reliable. If you didn't have enough of that water, how would you feel about the water? Uh, every time I turn on the faucet, I'd be like, I have to turn it off right away. It would be very stressful. You'd be thinking about it all the time. And your one consuming yeah. thing would be, how do I get a steady, constant supply of water, right? Right. To, to me, that, that's, that's money, right? It's, it's I, I have no ambition to live in some crazy $500 million yacht. And this is personal for everyone with that, right? My, my belief is that a $100,000 per year passive income is so far and away more than what I need to live if I have a paid off house and paid off cars and those types of things um, that I won't, that like, I, it's like water. Whenever I need more, I go to the bank account and download it and, and I can have a nice dinner if I want it or whatever. But like my, my happiness comes from a little bit of travel. I, I play rugby. I like to play some video games. I, you know, I just got married and, you know, if we have kids one day, I want to hang out with them and go on some trips and those kinds of things. But my, my happiness does not require a $250,000 or 500,000 or $1 million per year income. I may get there. My, my goal is to make money, to feel about money the way you feel about the faucet. I can leave it running sometimes and I won't worry about it too much. Whenever I need it, it's there and I'm going after it. But I'm not attempting to stockpile as much water in the bathtub as I possibly can for it. And I certainly don't want to die with zero. If I had a fixed amount of water and I was going to spend the last drip at the end of my life, I have to be thinking the entirety of the rest of my life about how how to manage that last little bit of water so I would die with zero. Also, I've you don't know when you're going to die. That's There's right. There's that too. So, yeah. 100%. So I've created, I've, I've created and, I, and I would suggest, and I, I, I like to suggest that some other people consider this as, a, as an option, to create an environment where I have a, a significant surplus of money. It is always growing. It is far more than I plan to need to sustain my happiness and lifestyle. And I can do basically whatever the heck I want as long as I'm not wildly irresponsible and leave the faucet running day in, day out with a gigantic leak that I'm not noticing under the house. So that's that's kind of how how I would think about the answer to your question. I don't want to die with zero. I want to die with way more than I need, but never have that be a focal point. And then whatever that is, I'll give to charity or the kids or whatever it is. Awesome. So as we're nearing towards the end of this interview, I asked this question of pretty much all my guests. In the future, when you look back in your life, what impact would you have left on this planet? Yeah, so what I want to do is, um, and, and this is my career, I'm going to fo focus on an answer with respect to answer this question, but I would like my career to be one where that was remembered by, hey, lots of people, hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of people, one million millionaires, if we can achieve that goal, became financially independent in part because of wisdom that they picked up or tips and tricks that they picked up from bigger pockets, and that a good percentage of those one million people go on to do 
extraordinarily cool things that I can't conceive of yet, like curing cancer or solving a global warming problem or running for office or writing a cool book that just makes people smile um, or, or enjoy themselves for eight hours or whatever. So that was a legacy that I would like to have in my career is to enable um, more human potential through financial freedom, especially for really high potential people early in life. Awesome. Thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Really had a great conversation. I had so many more topics to get into. I guess we'll just have to bring you back for another episode. I know you have to go now. Uh, but before we go, before you leave, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at, at Scott underscore trench. And you can also find me on Bigger Pockets. Just type me in the search bar and I'm, uh, I'll be hanging out around there. Uh, and then we also have a, a podcast called the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, where we talk about um, the specifics of people's journeys with money and how they got to financial independence. Some of them are software engineers who have pretty boring, but very highly effective stories. They graduate, they make a lot of money, they retire in five years. Some of them are, <laughs> you know, a uh, guy uh, is 500 pounds, you know, has to weigh himself on, this, on the Walmart scale, $20,000 in debt, loses all the weight, pays off all the debt and gets the financial freedom, you know, over that time. So it's a whole gamut of life experiences with that. And um, that's probably one of my passions talking about that stuff. Awesome. Thank you for listening to that conversation I had with Scott Trench. If you liked it and you want to hear more, make sure you click that subscribe button, like button, leave a five-star review, whatever your platform allows for truly would help me out, truly would help you out by getting more prominent guests that provide value for you, just like Scott and just like who we recently had, Dave Rubin. We have a lot of things coming up and I'm excited for what's in store. So stay tuned for all of that. And that'll do it for this episode of the podcast. I'm Jesse Levitan, and this was the Youth, America's Future.